Hello there, and welcome back to the fireside with me, Jim. I'm really happy you decided to join me again today for another toasted tale. If, like me, you enjoy hearing stories, then you've come to the right place. I think there are interesting stories in every subject, just waiting to be found and shared. In this podcast, we're going to take a random subject and use it as a seed to do one short hour of research, and in that time I'll do my best to find a story that both you and I will find enjoyable. So let's bring in the Wheel of Fortune style spinner and find out what today's subject will be. Right, okay, so today it's landed upon the Kentuckian city of Gent in the US. Now, just for clarity, I've never been to Gent, and I'm not a expert on the city. I'm just a guy who likes finding interesting stories from random subjects and learning a thing or two along the way. Now, with the power of the fireside and podcasting editing, I have already completed the one hour research about Gent, and I am really interested to share with you what I found. So, the first question I had when doing the research for this Toasted Tale podcast was why does a small city in northern Kentucky have the name of a major metropolitan European city? Well, looking back at the beginning of this city, it was first settled at the end of the 18th century and was known at the beginning as McCall's Creek Settlement, where around 13 families lived in the area on land owned by a man named Samuel Sanders. Now according to local legend, Henry Clay visited the area in 1816 and suggested that the town be called Gent. This was in honor of the Treaty of Gent in Belgium, which ended the War of 1812, where Clay had been one of the American negotiators at Gent. This was part of the team led by John Quincy Adams, and this treaty ended the war between the United States of America and Great Britain and its colonies. Now Henry Clay was a big deal. He was the ninth United States Secretary of State and also one of the senators from Kentucky. And so it's believable that a VIP traveling to your small city and suggesting a name change like this due to a monumental event that's recently happened, a diplomatic victory between two great powers, may have persuaded the city to change its name. Now, the small city that's parked on the southern edge of the Ohio River has an estimated population of 305 and has been steadily declining over the years. In order to find the most interesting stories that Gent has to offer, therefore, we need to go into its past. When trying to find stories about lesser-known places like Gent, It can sometimes be difficult to find personal tales that connect with me and I feel would connect with you. So I was, as you can imagine, really quite happy to find a incident that happened in Ghent during the US Civil War. As a bit of background, at the beginning of the four-year conflict, Kentucky as a state remained neutral. In an effort to avoid the horrors of the war, 
but also to become a mediating force between the two sides. A lot of states were choosing one side or another, but for Kentucky it would be a lose-lose situation either way, as joining either the North or the South both had benefits and negatives. For example, Kentucky was still a slave-holding state, with sympathies and connections to the South, both economic and personal. But also, they were staunch supporters of the Union, believing in the Constitution, and the nation the Founding Fathers left them. And the idea of the South breaking from the Union was deeply troubling for many Kentuckians. Strangely enough as well, they also felt the Union may actually be a better way to keep their slaves in Kentucky. As written in the Constitution, which Kentucky held in such high regard, it enshrines the rights of citizens to own and keep their own property. And at the time, of course, slaves were property. And so in their minds, they felt that the Constitution the Union wanted to uphold would protect their slaveholding rights. Kentucky was also geographically smack bang in the middle between the two sides the Confederacy below, and the Union to the north. And so there was a great worry that armies would be traipsed through their lands, and destruction would reign. So neutrality was their decided course of action. This was broken during the war, when the South first attempted to take some key strategic positions in the state, for fear that the Union would do the same. Now, in the eyes of the state, the South had broken the neutrality of Kentucky first, and so therefore, those who were undecided, who were on the fence in the state, decided that the Union in the North would be the side they would support. And that sets up the understanding and gives you an idea of the opinions of the people in the state at the time regarding the ongoing conflict. It's interesting when researching big events, like the US Civil War for example, because even though learning about that is really interesting, sometimes the more personal, smaller stories can be just as fascinating. There's one such story that's referred to as the Gex Landing Incident, which was a small story in the war, and surrounded the arrest of a man named James Salfard a ferryman and confederate sympathiser who lived in Gent. Now, it's a footnote in history, but for those involved, it may have been one of the most important events of their lives. I found a quote that explained the situation quite well, but it was taken from someone who was around near that time, and of course has all of the language that comes along with that time as well. So I'm going to read that out, but please keep that in mind. So in 1939, Tandy Ellis of Gent wrote, quote, In the summer of 1862, a company of coloured soldiers numbering 62, belonging to the 117th Coloured Regiment, passed through Gent under the command of Lieutenant Seward. They arrested James Southend, a citizen of Gent, who had been outspoken in his feelings for the Southern Confederacy. The soldiers made camp in the Gex farm, and others went to the homes of Albert Craig and John Anthony Gex. The woman folk were ordered to prepare supper for these coloured soldiers. John Southard, a brother of James Southard, rode over into Owen County 
where Colonel Jesse of Henry County was in camp with troops of cavalry. The coloured soldiers were all seated at the table enjoying the fat of the land when Colonel Jesse moved in on them at the Anton Gex home. And when the firing began, the soldiers leaped up and began to run helter-skelter. Some five or six of them were shot down in the yard. The commanding officer, who was at the Albert Craig home, tried to swim the river on his horse, but was captured, and he was about the most scared of the whole outfit. Every coloured soldier, who in that ten-minute engagement left the country, was never heard of until after the war." End quote. So effectively, a group of Union soldiers of one of the coloured regiments, which is what they were called in those times, had come in to arrest a Southern Confederacy supporter, and they were ambushed by a group of cavalrymen from the Confederacy, and were routed. It is interesting though, because I found some other quotes that I found were really interesting, and some opinions of people. There was a quote from the Cincinnati newspaper by A.L. Gex, who was the son of Lucian Gex, from the Gex Landing, and he told about the battle, about how the grandmothers and aunts who were at the home at the time were so mad about being asked to cook for these coloured troops, and I think that really paints a picture of the opinions of the time, and how divisive this war was, especially as there were big parts of it that were fought primarily on the issue to own slaves and the status of coloured people in America. And as I said, that one small skirmish, that encounter compared to massive battles would not make it too many history books, but I find that those moments for those people involved may have stayed with them for the whole of their lives, and maybe it's because there were less people involved, but this encounter feels more personal, and you can almost imagine it easier than trying to picture a massive battle. You can picture the trees, the homestead, the smells of food being cooked, soldiers eating, laughing, people cooking the food, the disgruntlement of being forced to cook for people maybe you don't support, and then all of a sudden the gunfire, the smell of powder, the shouts, the screams, the terror, the soldiers running for their lives, and then the soldiers being captured and being taken out of the war. You can imagine that, I mean, there's been films where you've seen little encounters like that, scenes where you can really picture the emotions on the faces of those involved. It's those personal human stories which I find fascinating. And the fact that this happened in Gent means it's able to be relived today. That's why I really like the randomness of the structure of this toasted tale. When you get a random subject, you find random stories. And this was a genuine surprise to find a dramatic story like this. Shifting slightly from the city's historical events to its historical inhabitants, I think you're able to get a good understanding for a place by seeing the types of men and women it creates and moulds into adults. And during my research I was able to find three interesting people that were either born or at an early age were around the city of Gent. And I think it'd be really interesting to have a look at these three people as well to see if we can get an idea 
of the sort of people Gent produces. Out of these three people, two are from the past in the 1800s, and the third is from more recent times. So we'll go back to the earliest ones first. The first of these three was a man named Edwin Otway Burnham, who was born in 1824. He was a Presbyterian minister who was known as a Kentucky frontiersman and rifle-shooting parson who could bark a squirrel, swing an axe, or dispense gospel with equal fervor and efficiency. That description itself just like imprints an image of a badass minister. <laughs> Gun in one hand, Bible in the other sort of thing. He was also a key figure in the defense of New Ulm in Minnesota during the Dakota Wars of 1862 and helped prevent the total destruction of that town when under attack by the native leader Little Crow and his Sioux warriors. I don't know about you, but I don't know many men of the cloth going around with guns defending towns nowadays, but I guess that says more about the times back then than it does of men of the cloth today. The second person I'd like to look at is a man named Lutus Sarles, born in 1848 in Gent. He was a prominent attorney, businessman, inventor, and political candidate. He did many things in his life, but two of the more interesting ones I found were where he was the lead advocate, paving the way to secure the rights of non-Native Americans in the US to purchase and own land that was currently on tribal lands. The early challenge for this involved a three-story building that had been built by Sarles in one of the Choctaw tribal lands, and the sheriff of Dubuxki County, citing tribal law, tried to sell this building under him. Of course, Rutus, not wanting for his building to be sold, secured a federal injunction preventing the sale on the basis that this taking of his property violated his equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment. And this was one of the first of many similar cases which eventually led to the Curtis Act which disbanded communal lands and actually set the stage for Oklahoma to become its own state as well. Another claim to fame for Ruta Sarles was when in May of 1892, the United States District Court of Arkansas found Sarles guilty of selling 10 gallons of lager beer to Native Americans, of which Sarles was sentenced to a fine of $250 and three months in prison. Now obviously not being very happy about that, he appealed and argued that lager was not as much a spirit and as the law itself talks about no ardent spirits shall be introduced under any pretense into the Indian country, then he argued that he should not be prosecuted under this, and the wily man he is was able to get it overturned, and that led to other overturns of similar convictions. And moving on to our third person, Nancy Dugit, born 18th of October 
1948, went to school in the city of Gent, and became an American theatre director, who moved and studied in London at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in 1972. Now, she worked and directed a number of theatre productions throughout her life, many of which were of fascinating subjects. I'd like to go through some of her theatre productions out of the many that she's made, just to give you an idea of the, the stories she was telling. For example, the play Any Women Can, grappled with coming out as gay. And actually, by the way, that theatre production provoked bomb threats in 1979, which I found mind-blowing. Another play, The Dear Love of Comrades, by Noel Gregg, was about a 19th century socialist utopian and early LGBT activist Edward Carpenter. Another one, Louise Page's Tissue, the first play about breast cancer, and Noel Gregg's Angels Descend on Paris was concerning the Nazis' persecution of gays and Jews. And finally, The Stick Wife, which was about the wives of three Ku Klux Klan members. A nice variety of subjects there, but all dealing with quite deep and difficult issues. Later in life, Nancy settled in South Africa and started an arts and drama group with male prisoners who were in maximum security prisons. She said, quote, Doing work about people who are at the edge is, for me, second nature. The following year, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, but that didn't stop her. She started a project in the Alexandria Township in South Africa using dance, drama, art, and movement to help empower and heal traumatized children. Before her death in 2003, she left instructions to spread her cremated remains in England, South Africa, and Kentucky. Nancy was memorialized by a plaque in St. Michael's and All Angels Church in Gloucestershire, England, and also with a cenotaph at the Gent Cemetery in Carroll County, Kentucky. Three wildly different people, their stories each giving us an idea of who they were, the times and experiences they went through, and also helping us understand the place they were born or brought up in, Gent, Kentucky. Thank you so much for spending time with me today around the fireside. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about Gent as much as I enjoyed researching it. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, then there's many ways you can support the show. One such example is finding your nearest carrier pigeon, writing a note to your friends and family, inviting them to join us by the fireside for the next Toasted Tale, and then send it off with your best wishes. After all, it would be great to see them by the fireside next time too. If you would like to join me again for another story around the fireside, then I'll be back here every Tuesday and Thursday. Your company would of course be greatly welcomed. I hope you have a lovely rest of day, and I will speak to you all again soon for another toasted tale by the fireside.